Welcome back to part two of our discussion with Arun Mahilnan. Moving beyond the festival, Arun also played a crucial role in the development of Singapore's cultural policy in the late 80s. Apart from the increased activities in the arts through the Arts Festival, there was a parallel recognition by the state to professionalize and grow the local arts ecosystem. And we can see this in the effort to develop our first publicly available official cultural policy, the report of the Advisory Council on Culture and the Arts, otherwise known as the ACA report. In February 1988, the Advisory Council on Culture and the Arts was established to map out a program to make Singapore a culturally vibrant society by the turn of the century. It was also tasked to craft a vision for Singapore's long-term arts and cultural development. The final report, which was released in 1989, has been described as a significant report marking the first dedicated recognition of the value of arts and culture for a maturing nation by the Singapore government. To formulate the policy and its recommendations, the Council was supported by five subcommittees, including the Working Group on New Cultural Development Agency, whom Arun was the chairman of. And I think this agency that we were talking about back then, of course, came to be the National Arts Council in 1991. May I ask you, why was a cultural development agency needed at the time when we already had a ministry? Well, like many things in government, there is always an evolutionary process. And after some time, you realize that the constraints of a government system actually is an impediment rather than an enhancer. The government has money and the government has power, yes, but in terms of actual implementation, you find the diversity of ideas that are required. It is funneled through a process. And in these very dynamic or very controversial or very different ideas don't really come up to the surface. This is a situation in all civil services. There's nothing unique to Singapore. Oh, right? I thought we were special. <laughs> no, no, no. We, I mean, we are special in some ways. But all bureaucracies, this is also true, even in the biggest corporations, and I had worked in and with at least 20 of the world's biggest corporations. Mm. And this is common in bureaucracies. So we felt that the arts uh, development within the earlier civil service system had placed certain constraints and that to unblock this, we needed a different legal as well as administrative structure. And it was on that basis my committee deliberated over many months as to what should be the new structure for this focused agency, even within the Ministry of Culture, which is a very broad rubric, you know, it covers so many things. So we felt that perhaps a new agency dedicated and focused on cultural arts development should be structured in a certain way. To make a long story short, in this case, unlike economic development, the arts area is one of the most subjective areas of human endeavor. There are as many right opinions as there are people. Mm. There are as many wrong things as there are people. A civil service structure is a straitjacket because it, is, it should function by the general standards. 
you can't make too many exceptions for each of the departments. Right? And we felt the structure we should recommend is not the stat board, which is usually the first option, but a company limited by guarantee. By then, a couple of institutions have already been established, including my current employer, the Institute of Policy Studies, was originally set up as a company limited by guarantee. Mm. So I studied the few existing examples of this structure, company limited by guarantee. So we put forward this idea. At first, that there was resistance within my own committee. <laughs> but after uh, deliberations, we managed to convince everyone that the company limited by guarantee, and very simply, I, I'm oversimplifying, but just for, the, uh, for reasons of brevity, the company limited by guarantee will be an autonomous group set up by the government, but reporting directly to the minister, not the PERMSEC, not anybody else, directly to the minister. Mm. And the minister will appoint the governing board. So it is not a case where the government has no control over it. The control will not be that different from a stat board or even a civil service department. But the processes would be completely autonomous of the civil service procedures and all that. And just a simple example, hiring and firing will be done by the company by its own standards, by its own methodologies, by its own norms. It will set its own norms. Whereas if you're a stat board, the norms have already been set. <laughs> and there is very little leeway for a CEO to go outside of these perimeters, you know. So we convince ourselves that this is a better thing. So we felt that the subjectivity of the arts area is such that it would have a greater opportunity to flourish without too many impediments. This was the primary reason. Of course, the one of the biggest objections was a stand board will be given a subvention by the government through its budgetary process. Where are you going to get the money? This was actually one of the biggest concerns by the civil servants in my committee or people with the only civil service experience. Sure. But having been outside and having been with Mobile, I knew in my heart and in my head that we can get the necessary funding. The government will give some funding, but it will not have the iron grip on mm. the processes, which were always stifling. And unfortunately, I, I uh, went off on my sabbatical <laughs> after the... We submitted this report to Mr. Ong Teng Chong. He knew fully well, and I heard it from his own mouth, that this is okay. Mm. I went off to Australia. Then I read in the papers that the, at the parliament session, the government presented an option where NAC would be established as a stat board. Mm. Something happened between the cup and the lip kind of thing. So later on, when I came back, I was, said, uh, I was uh, placated by saying, Arun, this is purely for funding reasons. Uh. There's greater certainty for funding. I don't know because I can't quote any official sources for this. And I'm absolutely convinced, having been in all kinds of structures, the National Arts Council should have been a company limited by guarantee. Sure. 
the, lax, the, the, the looser control would have enabled NAC to perform much better than it has. So after the NAC was established, the festival went under the NAC in 1992 with the appointment of Mr. Liu Chin Choi as the Director of Programming. We heard a quote from him earlier on, very interesting, where he described himself also as a civil yeah. servant having to deal with the festival without that formal training. There was also a first local collaboration between two dance companies, the Singapore Dance Theatre and Hong Kong Ballet in 1992. Those would be the key highlights. In 1993, there was the launch of the Biennial Festival of Asian Performing Arts, or yeah. FAPA. Mm. I think that was very short-lived, at least that name, but I do remember it. It was to alternate with the Singapore Festival of the Arts. So you have the so-called International Festival, the Singapore yeah. Festival of the Arts, and then it will alternate with the Festival of Asian Performing Arts. Yeah. So, and in a way, this is a bit of a change from the fringe, right? Previously, that was the fringe, yeah. which supported the, the local, local arts. Yeah. Yeah. So FAPA apparently saw poor attendance at the first two editions and a third edition in 1997 became its last. Yes. Yeah, it was, uh, in a way, it was inevitable that international programming is dominated by the so-called West. Mm. It is inevitable. But even people like Professor Tomiko were very keen uh, that we should have a greater Asian component. And I was certainly very much in favor of that. But as often happens, a good idea, when it is implemented poorly, it doesn't succeed. Unfortunately, I think the FAPA was one of those uh, things. It's a very good idea, basically. Yeah, But it's on the other side, we have now got a, a more of an annual cycle, right? The, instead of the biannual cycle. Mm -hmm. So the Arts lovers are not deprived of the amount of programming or content because the each was one once every two years. Now we have more opportunities. Mm, yeah. And we have a slate also yes. of local artistic directors. Definitely. Mr. Yeah. Luchin Choi. I think related to that, I should mention that we insisted that it must have a professional artistic director mm. or at least a dedicated artistic director. Mm. And that is how we brought in Robert Liu. Robert Liu has never done a, an international arts festival ever before. But in our opinion, he was still far better than giving it back to the civil servants. And as Chin Choi himself had readily admitted, it is not that the civil servants really wanted it. They were just <laughs> thrust upon uh, by the system. Yeah, it will be interesting to, to see how yeah. the various local artistic directors yeah. will find their way. And I'd just like to share the list with our listeners. We had Anthony Steele, of course, as you mentioned earlier on, sharing the years that he was artistic director, 1982 to 84. Then we had Robert Liu for another three years. And then we had Tisa Ng in 1990. Mr. Liu Chin Choi. This is the reversion that yes. you said, right? This is the reversion to the civil service from 1992 to 1999. Mr. Liu Chin Choi was the artist, uh, artistic director of the festival. And then Ms. Go Ching Lee for nine years after that, 2000 to 2009. And Mr. Loki Hong, 2009 to 2012. Now, this part is the departure. In mm. 2014, Ong Keng Sen who was then also artistic director of Theatre Works took over. And he was artistic director for three editions. 
till 2017. And then you had Gaurav Kripalani, Artistic Director of the Singapore Repertory Theatre from 2018 to 2021. I should say this is because of the generosity of COVID-19 thrown in. So the the years kind of uh, shifted a little bit. So Natalie Hanedige will take over this year in 2022. I should add a footnote to your list about the outsourcing of the arts festival under an artistic director who is not part of NAC. NAC, Mr. Liu Taiker, when he was chairman of NAC, he actually commissioned me and a couple of others to do a study of the Hong Kong Arts Festival Mm -hmm. because he knew my earlier expressions about the autonomy of the arts, arts festival and the artistic director he said, since uh, Hong Kong Arts Festival, which is far more successful than ours, has been there for a long time, why don't we go and study how they do it? And I submitted a report with my group, and our recommendation was it should be moved out. Hmm. Again, similar reasons. The constraints of the civil service and the constraints of the stat board are not the same as the constraints of an autonomous entity. And that's why an artistic director functioning as an autonomous entity would be better. Not that it is always best or the better than anything civil servants can do. I'm not saying that. But in general, the constraints of these systems are stifling. And as you have now seen, each artistic director has a very different vision of the festival. And it reflects their own vision more Mm. than a particular civil service mentality, which is the case in the earlier years. I I am uh, quite convinced that artistic endeavors should be given more latitude than, say, an economic or an environmental agency because of the subjectivity of the, it's a very nature of the beast. Mm. It, it is so subjective that we have to take a risk and give the autonomy and the authority for the artistic director. And once we find the product or the outcome is not acceptable, we can fire the artistic director. It's as simple as that. That's what we recommended. Mm. Even for the NAC, the person you appoint as a CEO is at the is that is a board of governors, they will decide whether the person is up to scratch or not. And you can easily replace the CEOs and the artistic directors. But if you have a civil servant running these kinds of operations, very often you will find a way of moving him or her out to another, uh, some other pasture and then <laughs> bring in yet another civil servant. Mm. Because the system requires that. I'm also hearing very passionately the the kind of ownership, the kind of yeah. the kind of thought and precision that yeah. you are expressing these issues comes from a very deep place where you've thought about the arts, and there there is a very deep belief and passion I think for the growth of the local arts, yeah. and and that's what is really infectious. You, of course, in in your really long career, you have formed, you have very fond memories, very firm friendships with uh, ITI, with the substation, because of the leaders as well, right? Tisa Sitaran, as well as uh, the late Kuo Pao Kun. I wonder if you could share some of your memories of being in um, those organizations with us. Yes. Well, my association with Kuo Pao Kun 
goes back a long way, and most people don't know this, that he worked in the same unit in RTS. He was in radio. Radio. <laughs> Chinese radio. Affairs too, uh, where I subsequently joined. Right. He was already a partially a, a, a legend because of the f- uh, fact that he was in prison and uh, wrongly accused uh, of being a communist uh, sympathizer and so on. Mm. And so I had already developed a certain liking for him because I have no problem confessing that I'm a a diehard liberal Mm. and I don't uh, subscribe to uh, dictatorial, authoritarian approaches where it is unnecessary. So Paukun had already made a, a mark in my mind even before I met and got to know him well. And then later on, when I was in Mobile, he had approached me to be part of the original TTRP, which was you mm. know somewhere in uh, near Bartley Road. There was a little house in the just a, away from Bartley Road. Right. So Professor Ediko and myself uh, were members of his so-called advisory panel. Mm. I, I let me uh, put one point in my relationship with Paukun. I have. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. I'm not a creator. And Paukun had consistently kept me by his side, mm. not because of my artistic merits, because I have some administrative ability, and even more importantly, I speak my mind. Mm. Paukun, by the time he established substation, he was already a kind of an iconic figure. And the people were worshipful of Paukun. But I, while I admired him greatly, I spoke my mind. And there is one other person in that group, which is Tan Beng Luan, Mm. who had been with him for a very long time. Beng Luan and I will always speak up and tell him off. And that is the main reason why I think Paukun kept me by his side. Not for any other merits. I have very few, if any. But he accepted the idea that I spoke from my heart and that I used my head and that I was saying things contrarian, but in the best interests of his mission. I'm very curious about one of those contrarian things that you might have said to him because, well, in drama, we say that conflict makes good drama and it looks like conflict makes good partnership as well. Yeah. But, oh, no, conflict makes good drama, <laughs> but very few can accommodate conflict in administration, right. in running a thing. This is the level of maturity that Paukun had that he was able to see when people said different things that there was, he would want to know why. Mm. He would want to know why. And I think I I passed muster in explaining my rationale. It is mostly, I have to say, mostly with the administration of his institution. And he was never a good administrator. This was TTRP? Uh, In all, TTRP, substation. substation. Yeah, yeah. And I think also ITI in the early days. And and he would be the first to say that. And that's why he invited people like me and Casey Chu to be part of this uh, process, you know. He knows that when we are saying something on how certain things should be organized or administered, which is not his area of expertise, he was magnanimous enough 
and I use the word magnanimous only because of his iconic status. He could have easily brushed aside, oh, let's, this is the way it's going to be done. He could have easily done that. Mm. But he never, ever did that. He never had a harsh word with me over more than 30 years that we have known each other. And I think I would say my involvement with Substation is another one of those rare stories. Because I was in Mobile, and he already knew that Mobile was the pioneer mm. supporter of the arts, he came to me first about, because Kang Soon and he had developed the idea of the substation, came for funding support. Mm -hmm. I, you remember I mentioned Dorsey Dunn. That's I right. think it's a blessing for me that he was a chairman. I went to see him about this proposal and he heard, he had some idea because it was on paper, the dimensions of substation and all that. He said, it seems rather small to me. Why don't you go and look for a, even a bigger place but not a new building. Mm. The spirit of the substation is repurposing. Mm. That is what, I, unfortunately, and all others seem to have missed the whole point of substation. That space was invested with a certain spirit by people like Pao Kuhn and Kang Soon, which cannot be replaced. Mm. So I came back. So I submitted a proposal to Pao Kuhn that we will fully fund this but on one condition, that this has to be Mobile Art Center. Mm. And Paukun said, no, we cannot give naming right to the whole center. Okay. Despite the fact that we were close friends. I mean, my management also said, well, we are giving so much of money, then we don't have any naming rights. It's not worth our time. I think in... Both cases, they were perfectly valid decisions. So when I conveyed this uh, bad news to Pao Kun, instead of throwing me out, he later asked me to join the board of <laughs> substation. That is called Pao Kun for you. Wonderful. Yeah. Which is why we got along. And of course, I consider that a great honor for me to have served with him. I think that gives a lot of inspiration to uh, people who are finding out about the pioneers of the arts. And uh, Substation, of course, mm. as we know it, has been returned. The building has been returned to the National Arts Council. Yeah. Here on Backlogs, though, we do have an upcoming episode of an interview with Wong Hanjuan for the Substation. And the Even King, in yeah. the case of ITI, I should add, I was a resident skeptic when this <laughs> particular conception of theatre training was put forward. Yeah, TTRP was, Theatre uh, uh, Training That was, yeah, TTRP, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The yeah. ITI was a later name. And uh, so I was, uh, but uh, when it was finally prepared, he told Sasi, go and give it to Arun and see what he says. And I was so impressed, and which is why I'm still there for nearly 20 years, you know. So this skepticism was something that he welcomed rather than people who are sycophants, people who are uh, in thrall uh, of him. Yep. Not so much into the hero worship and nope. things like that. No, nope. no. Nope. Yeah. There's so many things that you've shared with us and I think I do have a question which... It's a big question, but I'm really interested to hear your view. What's the biggest obstacle you think that arts managers have today? Okay, I, we, when we talk about arts managers, unlike in many other countries, arts is 
so much in the hands of the government in Singapore as uh, opposed to non-government hands. So this is a reality we have to face, accept, and make the best of it. So in the case of the arts managers in the government, there are already some basic imperatives. It is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multilingual society. And the government has pledged that it will abide by this fundamental of Singapore's existence, that it will always be a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual society. Now, once you have made that kind of uh, 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 pledge, and in, in fact, some aspects of are already enshrined in our constitution, government arts management must always refer to these fundamentals. Am I doing for all ethnic groups? Am I doing it for all art forms? Am I doing it for all uh, languages? So this places enormous constraint, while it also gives enormous opportunities, on the modus operandi in the non-government sector, whether it is private sector or the people sector. I mean, here, the challenges for the arts manager are many times more than the government's, even though their constraints are different from ours. Here, we don't have to pretend to cater to everyone, whether it is a substation or the ITA, as two examples where I have personal experience, we go by the arts imperatives. Raw theater was an imperative for substation. Experimental theater was an imperative for Paco. This right. is not the imperative for the government. Mm. The second thing is, in the private sector, the resources, not just financial resources, even other resources are limited. You see, for example, if an NAC official wants to know what uh, the British Arts Council has done, a, a phone call away. Mm -hmm. They will get so much of material, so much of advice. It's the norm. But if I am sitting in ITI and I want to find out how such programs are run, the amount of effort we have to make, because there's nobody else to mm. snap your fingers at. Correct. We don't have that. And so even to find knowledge, even to find insight, even to uh, share experience, it's so much tougher for the arts managers mm. in the NGO sector. And I can go on for the rest of the day. Now, in the last 10 years, I can see the arts management in the arts groups are professional. When I started out in 70, hardly anybody, they don't even have the concept of marketing. Mm. They will just say publicity. That's what they were thinking of. So I, in my role, I also encourage them, you're focusing entirely on the artistic creative output. You are not looking at the other things. How do you keep track of your uh, expenses? How, what is the management structure? Which many funders never ask these people. They, you can ask them. I used to focus on these things, just like in substation, where my role was more to do with the administration of the substation. So as a private sector funding arts manager, my uh, role was such that we are not only giving money to support, but socializing the arts group to good management practices. That is so passionate. 
Arun. I picked up, I, I made a list for our listeners as well. I think we meet a lot of young people nowadays who, who, who want to Google and find an answer yeah. for arts management. And as you said, it, it's hard, right? So these are some of the things that I wrote down. And for brevity, I'm just going to ask you to say yes or no when I yeah. say them out. To me, what Arun has shared with us about being an arts manager, these are some of the essential skills. Make friends. Yes. Beg. Yes. Talk to yes, people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Grow a thick skin. Yes. Know the terrain. Yes. Be an ally or build bridges. Yes. Be curious. Yes. Think big. Yes. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Yes. Be present. Yes. Listen. Yes. Do due diligence. Yes. Enable others. Yes. Shine a light. Yes. Okay. You have uh, made it better than I, I was able to. All of them are definitely boxes that you have to tick. Mm-hmm. The arts manager, as I see myself, as I also confessed earlier, I don't have a, a creative capacity. But if you are an arts manager, you must know management thoroughly. Mm. Just like you are expecting the director to direct well, the writer to write well, the actor to act well, the manager should manage well. Unfortunately, arts managers don't think of themselves until recently. Of course, some of them are professionally trained. Arts management courses are offered both locally and abroad. Mm. But previously, they didn't think. They were thinking of themselves like a support staff. The management of substation is as important as the creative output that you are manage, you are putting, putting out. Up. That's right. So your staff here who are doing the management side, they have to be thoroughly trained. They have to be very, very good. Mm. So this combination of on-stage and off-stage thing are critically important for arts development. Unfortunately, we privilege the creative effort, the creative endeavor, and underprivileged the non-creative but critically essential endeavors. That's right. That's right. Well put. I'm going to end on this phrase that you used right at the top of our interview, which was that Singapore was a cultural desert. So what do you think of Singapore now? Oh, now it is is not only a cultural garden, it is like the gardens in the bay. Uh, There is so much of rich, diverse environment, I would say. Very rich, very diverse environment. And uh, I think we have to thank the Singapore government more than any single entity where the government had now put in so much of money, so much of effort, and it has raised the signature for arts in the, say, at the cabinet level, at the administrative level. So we have to thank the government for that. But also the private sector, without which we could not have reached this stage. Some of them have become professional arts providers. The private sector already has professional arts providers. Then there are the funders. But of course, arts cannot exist without the artists. They are the reason why we are here. So again, arts management is there for arts, for the sake of arts not for the sake of management. And I hope we'll never ever revert to being a cultural desert. (laughs) 
Thank you very, very much, Arun. Thank, Thank you. you so much for Thank sharing you. all your insights, your experience you. and spending the time here with us on Backlogs today. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. It is actually quite rare. Uh, uh, nobody has interrogated me for so long on this subject. <laughs> You've just come to the end of another episode of Backlogs, an arts management podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about any of the key events, people and institutions mentioned in this particular episode, head over to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G to find further information pertaining to each episode's content. You may find them under show notes on the respective pages for each episode. For more resources with regard to arts management in Singapore, head to the resources page on the website. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at backlogs.sg, which will be updated every time a new episode is released. Share your comments with us by tagging us at backlogs.sg or using the hashtag backlogs.sg. If you've enjoyed what you heard today and would like more, do support our fundraising efforts. We are raising funds to support the operational costs of manpower, equipment and resources in order to keep this podcast going. You may find the donation link on our website as well as our social media channels. This first podcast series is presented by Centre 42 and Singlet Station together with researchers Dr Ho Su Fen and Dr Cheryl Julia Lee. It is supported by the National Arts Council Singapore. Thank you for listening.